Yes, you may be seated. Thank you. Oh, thank the praise team. You know, it's great to have them up here and doing their thing every week and such faithful people. I'm so grateful and glad. Um, before we get started in the Word of God, I just need to share a quick uh, prayer request with you. Um, starting in, uh, well, starting Tuesday morning at 545, I will be going into Hogue Hospital for surgery. They're going to put a brace in the front of my spine. I'm not going to describe how they're going to do that. And then they're going to put another brace on the back of my spine. The total time should be about four and a half hours. And from there, then we will have, um, I'll have three days in the hospital. And also um, they're thinking, I've heard everything from four to eight weeks of recovery. So I would just ask for your prayers during that time. So if I'm not here, it's not because I moved away to, you know, Yellowstone to fish all my life. <laughs> not that that's not what I wanted to do, but we're just glad to be here. So let's continue in our study of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Last week, Pastor Jeff did some amazing job, and he shared with us in chapter 2 and gave us some insights of Nehemiah accepting the call of God to repair the walls of the city of Jerusalem. We saw how Nehemiah spent much time in prayer before talking to King Artaxerxes of Persia, and now the king granted Nehemiah time away from his job as the king's cupbearer to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. That's where we're at last week. So today I would just like to share some insights in chapter 3 as well as give some events that took place from chapter 2 at the end of chapter 2 to accomplish these events in chapter 3. As we look at chapter 3, notice that the whole title is listed. If you have your Bibles there, the Bibles are in, in the, underneath there to you. If you look to the book of Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take that one home. Um, we have plenty of them, and we'd love to share them with you. So we're going to talk about that. I want to just, before we go into it, I'd just like to read some verses, but I'll get to those in just a minute. Um, one of the things about this is, the, as the chapter is titled, The Builders of the Wall, chapter 3 is because each verse contains a list of all of the people that it took to accomplish this task. And the walls of Ju Jerusalem had been destroyed for many years before the exile uh, that took people to Babylon, Persia, and some of the other nations around them. So some of them wound up in Samaria. Some of them wound up, they wound up everywhere. They were just exiled out of their, their homes. And that's where they had to go. So before we get going too far, I'm going to read a little bit of uh, verse 2. I'm going to start first into uh, chapter, yeah, chapter 2 with verse 11. I'm going to start there. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. It says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. So we know that he had been there. Once he got there, he rested for three days. And I, gave, and I rose in the night after the third day and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem... <laughs> Ah, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And that's an interesting story, but because of time, I'm not going to get into all of that. 13. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well. 
and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates were consumed by fire. 14. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the, the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. So he's basically made a full circle around the entire city of Jerusalem to find out the damage. He was assessing the damage before he got started. So let's look at chap, uh, verse 15. So uh, 16, I'm sorry, yeah. We did, uh, yeah, and, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and how also the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us, they despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And verse 20 says, so I answered them, and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we as his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right or memorial in Jerusalem. That's the finish of chapter 2. And as we look at that, we start to realize that, as Jeff, Pastor Jeff talked about last week, there will be naysayers, there will be those that, that don't want to uh, have this project finished, and I'll be talking about the reasons why in just a minute. And I don't want to go verse by verse in chapter 3 because it lists every single person and the people with them, the groups of people, where they are from, and all of those things are in chapter 3. So I could sit here and list and read a book of names to you. It's, it would be like going and reading the book of Numbers out to tell children to have fun. And by the time you got finished reading it, they would all be asleep. So I don't want to do that to you because we have some issues with having people sleep anyway. So we're going to go on, and I want to talk about verse, chapter 3 a little bit. Because each one of the names in this chapter matter. Each name that you read in chapter 3 of Nehemiah has their own story to tell. They have their own reasons for being there. They have issues of getting there. They have issues of finishing the work, and then they have issues after the work is done. And, and as you go through this book, Pastor Jeff and Rod and myself, we'll all be sharing with you some of those things with you. But I'm just going to look at a couple of the verses to just bring them out to just show you an example of how each verse has its own story of the people that were in it. So if we are in chapter 3 and we look at verse 4, for instance, okay, next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakkah, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechia. Then in verse 30, it has the same people's names. It says, after him, Meshulam, the son of Berechia, carried out repairs in front of his own house. What this shows us is that some of the groups of people who got on this wall, when they accepted the call of God to do it, they realized that their neighbors, friends, family, people, sometimes people they didn't even know, 
needed their help because there wasn't enough of them to finish the part of the wall they were working on. So, as it turns out, Meshulam, the son of Berechia, he worked on somebody else's portion of the wall before he started to work on his own. That's amazing to me that when God's people get a call, the first thing they do is, yes, we heard you call God, but who needs our help? See, there are many of you in this church that when we put out a call for help for anything, for the projects, for either getting food to people, for the children's ministry, for anything we've got going on, for helping fix the church and do stuff here, all of a sudden the list grows and there's people standing up and say, what can we do? And that we love about every single one of you who jump up and do that. Let's look at verse 5. This is an interesting, in chapter 3. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support their work of their masters. Now, what I find interesting is this, their nobles did not support the work of their masters. So in other words, their bosses were doing the work, but these guys who were nobles considered hierarchy in the city of Tekoa, they did not necessarily want to join the task of building the wall of Jerusalem. And there's a reason for that. Tekoa is 90 miles south of Jerusalem. Most of the people who were from Tekoa they stayed there during the, all of the exiles that were going on when people left and went to Persia, went to Babylon, went to, I just, sorry, I just saw somebody here. Ben's here. Hey, Ben. <laughs> sorry, I, just, I got sidetracked there. It just freaked me out a little bit. So the people who stayed in, but see, what we don't realize is not everybody left Jerusalem during the exile. There were people who stayed. Now, how would you feel? If you're in your country, and all of a sudden, for the next how many ever years it took, and there were a few different time periods for different groups of people, but they stayed there and, and stayed the course and stayed in their city, and they didn't get taken away in the exile. But not only did they not get taken away in the exile, but those people that did, unfortunately, stayed where they were after the exile was demanded and they began to take husbands and wives from the people of a different country. And in that day, that was not an acceptable practice. They were very upset about that. So the people in Tekoa, the reason that their nobles did not support their work was because the people who stayed there in Jerusalem during that had a problem with people the exile bringing in the strangers into their lands. And it was made worse by the prejudice of the people who lived in Persia, in Babylon, in those other countries. So this is another group of situations, another set of problems that you're going to see addressed in the future study of this book. Pastor Jeff and Rod are going to be dealing with some of that in the future. So let's look at uh, verse 12. Here's an interesting one. And to us this wouldn't be a big deal, but of this day it was a very big deal. Verse 12 says, and next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. The fact that the author makes note that mentioning he and his daughters, and nobody else's, all the other groups that had sons that helped them, didn't mention all the sons. But the fact that he says this one group right here, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, he and his daughters, they made their repairs. The fact that the author made a specific notice of this is that it was of that day 
not a common practice, not only that in some places it was not accepted, that women would help in construction. They would have taken notice, and it could have taken such notice that some people on both sides of them would have said, I'm not working next to girls, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Those girls are starting to pick up hammers. They don't know how to work a hammer. And, there, and today, we would say, today we would say, it's no big deal. See, I have three very strong daughters, so I can clue you right now. My daughters would be there rebuilding more than their dad. So in our day, it's acceptable, but in this day, it wasn't. It's just amazing how that he did that. Now, when the doctors were helping and probably worked on most of the house and everything around their home as they were building the wall, by the way, they were building 40 feet of the wall, which is twice the size of this stage. This stage is 20 feet. I think, Ben, didn't we measure it? 20 feet. So it's twice the size of this that they built their wall. And by the way, it's 40 feet high that they built it. Yeah, so this was not a small task that these people took on when each of them were doing that. But the thing that they worked on was that their own place. And as far as all of these scholars can figure, the reason that it was finally accepted and they were not bothered at the end was simply because those girls would have inherited all of their father's property. So it would stand to reason that they, as the new property owners, would work on their own property. Now, culturally, it was a no-no. But what I find very interesting, because to the people of Israel, one of the most important things you can have is property. To be a property owner culturally is a very, you're a very high standing. So it moved those girls down from little girls who play in the front yard and don't do anything to girls who are going to be property owners and own that property. And anybody who wanted to be discussing the value of that property in the future or anything to do with that property, what I found out later on was Shalom and his daughters actually ran a mercantile of, of materials. And if people wanted to discuss with them the price of that material, you don't want to get on their bad side. You see, because obviously what's going to happen is when you ask, if I was the guy that, that said, oh, you guys are so amazing, you did great work, right? And I just told these girls, and then I needed to purchase something from them, I'm going to get a good price. Now, if I'm over here and I'm saying, those girls don't know how to work a hammer, right? Those girls are going to remember that. And the sisters are going to look at each other. Trust me, girls talk, I know. So the girls, the sisters would look at each other and they're going to say, remember him? He's the guy that said we didn't know what we were doing. Oh, yeah. Hey, Bill, you know what? You can have this stuff at $4 a yard. Oh, sir, yeah, you can have it at $40 a yard. It's yours. That's what would happen. And so the people around the cultural cultural parts of the city, they began to understand that their job was to basically understand these women were going to be the property owners of not just the house, but also of the mercantile. Now, the last one I want to go through in chapter 3, verse 16. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the official of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the point opposite the tombs of David, and as far as the artificial pool, which later became Shilam, and the house of the mighty men, which later became the house, the uh, headquarters of the Israeli army. So what makes this part so interesting? Because I kept thinking, so what's the big deal about all those references to lo the local landmarks? 
They're familiar, first off, to the, to, to the audience that was going to read this letter later on. But the key was that Nehemiah was now not following the original plan of the wall. For some reason, Nehemiah felt it necessary that he had to build a new section of the wall, one, to make it not only bigger and stronger, what, because he found out that Jerusalem's boundaries were set by those who were non-Israeli um, people. I'm not gonna, I almost messed up and told you who they were, but I'm sure Jeff is going to share that later. So I just want you to know, they were non-Israeli people. And so he is building a whole brand new section of the wall in a brand new direction. And the reasons are varied, and, and sometimes we don't understand, but even archaeological evidence of today, because they have they started in 1947, they started digging up and around Jerusalem, and they started to find all the walls. And as they started to build and big, dig up the walls and stuff, they found out that this new section of wall is a different size and goes a different way than the original wall did. So Nehemiah not only got the call of God to rebuild the wall, but in his call, God had him change it, which is not something you just do in a you know, post-exilic. The, the exile made it so that when they came back, they wanted to build it the exact same way. And for some reason, Nehemiah is also taking this in the way. But Nehemiah didn't have anybody else do this. This is the interesting part that I thought. And my, my brain goes kind of sideways sometimes. So I thought, why would he do that? And the only reason that I thought that he took this on himself is because it was his project. He was the PM, the project manager for it. And he knew that if somebody else did it, there would be a big hassle and people would start fighting with them and stuff. But Nehemiah knew the wall needed to go this way. It was necessary for it to be how God wanted it to be. And so Nehemiah made sure that everybody knew this is where God told us to build the wall. At that point, there was no more arguments. And I could go on and on about some of the stories of each of those verses. So what I wanted to demonstrate was each story and each name has its own, each name has its own story and vision and, and purpose. I could go on and on about that. And, well, there's even one story about a Samaritan official after I was doing research. And I get caught up in my research. And as I was doing the research, I found out there is a Samaritan official who had his daughter seduce and marry a son of one of the district officials of Jerusalem to gain insight into Nehemiah's plans from her new father-in-law so that she could pass the word on to her dad and he could thwart or slow down or stop the building of the wall. Sounds like a 20th century soap opera to me. But anyways, I'll let Jeff and Rod bring who that was and bring that story up later because I know I'm going to get a call after a while and say, who was that? But I would like you to see how all of these events of rebuilding the wall started. So we're going to go back to chapter 2. It was from one person, Nehemiah, getting the call. And as far as I can figure, as I, as I looked and I checked it out, as far as I can figure, there were 50 teams, close to 250 plus people, 250 to 300 people, that picked up their tools and started building. So now we're going to look at chapter 2, go back a little bit, because I want to see what led up to it. I almost feel like I'm in, in a movie where they, they start and show you part of the movie, and then they go back in a flashback and say, here's how we got to this point. Well, that's what I want to do here is say, this is how we got to this point. 
Because in verse 11 to 15 in uh, chapter 2, it begins to start this way. And it says, three days after Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he took a few men with him and went out to survey the damage of the walls of the city. He made a complete circle around the city because we know at the beginning he says he entered by the valley gate and then he returned by the valley gate in, in verse 15. So we know that he went all the way around and assessed all the damage. And it breaks it down into every piece that he saw. And it also talks about how his heart was broken with each piece that he saw. Then in verse 16, he says, The officials <coughs> of Jerusalem did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials, or the rest of those people who did the work. After verse 16, what's interesting is we don't... When you're, when you're studying the Bible... It gets to a point where that you read, you're reading a story, you're reading a story, and then all of a sudden it just flips and changes into something. You never get a place in the Bible where it says, okay, now we're going to have a position of, it's going to be a different part of the story now. So you can stop reading after this verse, and then you can go into that. So there's no like paragraph breaks or anything. And remember, when the Bible was originally written, it was just a giant scroll and they kept telling the stories. There was no numbers and chapters and verses and all that. That didn't come along until six, the 600 AD. So when we get to the point of, of understanding how these uh, events change and, and, and the circumstances change, we, sorry, my brain went blank for a minute. The circumstances change. We have to understand and break it down a little bit and slow down so, to understand. Because the Bible never says to us, okay, there's a time of break in the next verse. It goes from event to event. We must understand the time frame between events. I bring this up because in verse 17, we see a whole new conversation happening between Nehemiah and his people. In verse 17, he says, And I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we'll no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah starts by giving them a personal reason because everybody that was listening to him in his culture would have had those same feelings. In those days, if you were said you were from the city of, of Geshem or you said you were the city of, of any of the other cities around Jerusalem, you would have known that you had a fortress built around you. And that was a very common thing for cities to have high walls, lots of strength and lots of power. And your power of your city was determined by how well it was protected. Now, this city of Jerusalem, with its walls completely down like that, was vulnerable to everything, anything that any of the other countries, towns, towns counties, people around them wanted to do. And they were feeling that same reproach themselves. And then in verse 18, he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and how also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Stop here for just a second. Because you see, folks, for each one of us, even today in the 21st century, in 2023, yay, I said 23, not 22, he said, here's the thing. He tells them, he says, hold on, I want you to understand how God has been favorable to me. And the king's words which he had spoken to me. So in other words, not only did I get a message from God, but when I brought it up to the king, he confirmed 
that it was from a message from God himself. Because he did not argue. The king came to me and said, okay, how, so the, and the king basically asked him, how long are you going to be gone? Okay, so when are you going to return? What do you need to do? Oh, do you need some scripts so that you can get in your materials to help build this city? The king gives him everything he needs. Nehemiah knows good and well that if this is God's plan, all of those things are going to drop into place. How many times? Don't shoot the messenger. How many times have you tried to make plans where it felt like on every level it was being stopped? Or how many times have you made plans where you felt on every level like this has to be of God? There's no doubt in your mind because you know when God speaks to you. Amen? Amen. Wait, wait, wait. You know when God speaks to you. Amen? Amen. Thank you. So that, I love to hear that, by the way. So whenever you understand that God is talking directly to you and he's reaching to you and he's trying to get you to start something, we can do one of two things, can't we? We can say, God, you must be talking to somebody else. You know, send my brother. He talks better than I do. Oh, that excuse didn't work for Moses either. Uh, I don't have the education. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the abilities. My dear family, if you didn't have the abilities, God would not be calling you. And let me ask you this. Who knows your abilities more than the creator who made you? You see, we, we have to realize sometimes we get called into projects bigger than ourselves. And when we get called into those kinds of projects, what's the first thing we should do? Oh, bless your heart, Darlene, you're absolutely correct. The first thing we do is pray, and we say to God, thank you, Lord, that you're doing this. Guess what? I can't do it by myself, so God, you got to supply everything I need. Put it back on him. Okay, if you're calling me to do this, great, I'll be glad to do it. But guess what? I need this and this and this and this, and until I get that, there. And see, that's what Nehemiah tried to do, but then the king said, okay, here's the this and this and this and this. You know, I went, uh, I guess we're going home to Jerusalem. And he had to tell his people that. It's a reminder that when God gives the call and blesses our obedience to just take that first step, that he gives us the words of wisdom, the way to deliver the message, and he will bless our response. That's how it really works. And you can see that time and time again, especially in the next 12 chapters, the next 10 chapters of Nehemiah. You're going to be able to see how God takes every time naysayers and every time there's trouble that comes up, every time something explosive happens, God steps in and says, yeah, but here's how you handle this. And it gets taken care of because God blesses the response of his people. And then at the end of verse 18, Without hesitation, no hesitation, the word of God simply records the people when they say in response to Nehemiah's plea of how God helped him, what do they say? Let us arise and build. Oh, that's funny. That's the title of today's thing. Because we are, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more at the end, but we are on the threshold of this church we are just got done with a whole lot of years of nastiness with pandemics and all that other stuff. And right now, we're trying to make this a place where God's love abounds. And we're going to work on that together. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more. 
Then, at the end of verse 18, when they say that, let us arise and build, so it says, they put their hands to the good work. So, you know me, I've, you, you're used to me preaching now, so you know good and well, I had to go see what that good work actually was in Hebrew. And I did. And you know what it says? They put their hands to the blessed work of God. See, many times they get to say, they, they will say it in English the easiest way they can. So that's why I always go into the original languages and look it up and realize and say, wow, what if they had said that so they put their hands to the blessed work of God? Because that's really what it says. And as Nehemiah spoke the calling of God, the Spirit of the Lord was touching his heart to speak to them. But the Spirit of the Lord was also talking to each one of their hearts. The great part of this story to me, the most amazing part, without hesitation, they answered. They didn't even slow down to wait and say, yeah, but wait a minute, we need this, but wait a minute, what about this, but wait a minute. They didn't do that. Of course, the naysayers are coming later, but not one of them at this point in time stopped and said, okay, wait a minute, I don't know that we really want to do this. They didn't do that. Without hesitation, they answered immediately because... In their hearts, in their minds, they heard the call of God themselves. Nehemiah did not have to force them. He did not have to coerce them or guilt them into it. He didn't have to challenge them. All he did was spoke the vision that God gave him, and they answered, let us arise and build, without even thinking of another thing to do. Now, when we get into verse 19, you know, like Pastor Jeff told us last week, there will be naysayers. Guess what? We've got naysayers here. So verse 19 says, When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobias the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us, they despised us, and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? With all kinds of snottiness and attitude. Because they thought for sure that they could bring up, you know, you're going against what the king said done. He did, the king did not tell anybody to do this. Because all of a sudden, because we are the nobles, we would have heard. We are, we are the people who would have heard that before you. And guess what? That wasn't how it worked. So what we have to look at is when we are doing inductive Bible study. Stop there for a moment. Let's find out who these naysayers are and just see why they have such an objection. So I did a little study and a little bit of research. Yes, I know you're getting used to that. So I said, stop there a moment. Sanballat is from Samaria, okay? Tobias is from Ammon, right? Geshem is an Arab. None of those places, the closest place to them is, um, I would say, yeah, the, the closest one is, is Sambalas from Samaria, so he's way up north. Tobias is from Ammon. Geshem is the closest because he's 90 miles away. But not one of them had anything to do with Jerusalem, and you can tell that because of how Nehemiah answers them. There, there's communities that were out there. All three of these people were from communities that did not want to see Jerusalem to be the stronghold of the people of Israel that it used to be. 
As the period of exile ended and the king allowed the people to re, of Israel to return to their city, those who opposed them did not want them to return to their previous power of influence because Jerusalem always was a very strong city because it's called the city of who? The city of God. We're going to have to have a history lesson here soon. But, but he's called the city of God because God was the one who first stepped into that and said, this is my city. When we get into the book of Revelation at the end of it, you're going to see that when God calls a city down, where, what does he call down? What does he say? You're going to have a new city, new bodies, new everything. And he says, you're going to have a new... Yes, they can't be taught. So we get to the point of the completion. We want to talk about how it worked. People around him, the project of returning God's people and restoring them to what it was going to be, had to be done because of God's will. When he answered their mocking and ridicule, he did not respond to them with rash retaliation. He did not fight, he did not scream and yell. He returned to the one who called him and reminded all of the people around him of how the project of returning God's people to God's city and restoring it to what God created it to be was going to be done because it was God's will and calling to make it happen. See, he reminds them one thing. The completion of God's project is in God's hands. Everything that we are trying to do, when we are trying to do things that we are know of the word of God, that we are know are by the spirit of God, and he's the one calling us to do this, whether it's reaching our community, reaching into our family ministries, reaching into our music ministry, reaching in to help those, those technicians that are up there making this happen every week. Whatever it is that we feel that we got a calling to do, the completion of that is in God's hands, family. I mean, oh, we could be like Jonah and run away. You know, Jonah, go to the east of Nineveh. Yeah, okay, I'm going west over here. Did Jonah wind up where he was supposed to be in the first place? I do not want to be thrown up by a whale. I'm going to go where God calls when I need to be there. That would not be kind of a, we won't get into that. What was the lesson we have? So let's talk about what is this lesson. Because we see a very detailed account of what happened in Jerusalem at this day and age. As we reflect on the amazing achievement it represents. The first thing we notice is how everyone is completely unified in their intention. To achieve God's call. Let us arise and build. God calls us, let's go. I went through kind of the way I like to do stuff, and I documented all of the groups of people that get close so I could get close to an accurate account. And here's what I counted. There were 50 different groups of people working on different parts of the wall. I found one scholar who said it was probably 250 to 300 people, all with one single purpose, because they knew it was the call of God to build this wall. We should also remember one other thing, and, and this includes the extensive areas that completely new wall, a new line for the wall was being built because God thought it needed to be this way, or God said it needed to be this way. 
as we learn in the next chapter, the work was done with expertise sufficiently quickly, which took Sanballat by surprise. You're going to hear his name a few times in the next few weeks. Nehemiah, just a short time before this, was a simple cupbearer to the king of Persia. As such, he was comfortable lifestyle. He had no, and he had no evidence of being a, first a construction worker or much less a professional project manager. He had no reason to show them because what was his job? When the food and drink came, first thing he had to do was taste it. Waited, as long as he lived through it, he could give it to the king. That's all his job was. So as a very trusted person of the king, he did have a very comfortable lifestyle. Yet, it was this plain, ordinary king's cupbearer separated from his family that God called to achieve one of the greatest feats ever in the history of Jerusalem. Amazingly enough, Nehemiah shows a remarkable gift of organization and leadership. And nothing is said about that in, this whole, in the whole text, in all 13 chapters. It doesn't say anything about how amazing he did that was. Even though as we read the text and look at all these detailed evidence, it is clear that God chose Nehemiah because God knew Nehemiah was capable of everything that God called him to do even if Nehemiah did not know it himself. Dear family, when we get down to this, you have feats, you have abilities, you have stuff in you that you don't even know about. You may have been pushing it down because two things, you have a fear that you're afraid of doing anything. No, God, I cannot go over there and teach those four and five years old. That's not my calling. And it really isn't my calling, but my daughter, she has the calling. Some of you might. But we also have junior hires. We also have high schoolers. We also have young adults, right, Josh? We got, we got groups that would love to have some wisdom spelt into them. By the way, this gray hair and white hair and no hair, that's the wisdom part I'm talking about. Because some of us who are like that, we think about all the time that we're finished, that we're all done, that we're not needed. That is not true. There is a time when you have to understand that God has going to call you to do things that you don't think you can, but he knows you can. So the only response and answer you should give and should be willing to give is the fact to say, okay, God, I can't do this, but here's what I need for you to show me how to do it. Bam. Then when that happens, you're on the hook, by the way. Just as soon as you say, God, I can't do it, so you have to show me, and he shows you, then there it is. There's your proof. There's what you're supposed to be doing. And the first thing you do is what? Take the first step. He doesn't want you to have all the plans figured out, everything all at once. All he wants you to do is take the first step. When, he, when Abraham was leaving, he said to Abraham, you need to go and you take the first step and I will show you the way you should go. And that's what he's telling all of us today. And that's what he was telling all of these people. You all just pick up one brick at a time and build the wall in front of your house. And when you find out what a short time, I think Jeff actually told us, it was 52 days later. There's a complete wall around Jerusalem. See, that's how God works. Not man. Because man would have told you and looked at you and said, oh, that can't be done. 
it shows how Nehemiah's faith in God was so deep. He did not hesitate to question God. He just answered by taking the first step. He went around and looked at the city. We also see there may have been considerable strains between those of different political and religious beliefs among all those people. Because remember, when it talks about all the people, it tells you where they're all from. Which as you look in the Bible and then you look in your little Bible maps in the back and you find out how far away some of those people came to help build that wall, some of them 200 miles, then you realize, and they walked. Yes, they didn't have Ubers. So they walked, and as they got there, they realized, okay, I'm in the right place, this is what I do, and they looked at Nehemiah, where am I going? Nehemiah says, I want you to go to this section over here. You go to the dragon's gate, you go to the sheep gate, you go to the... Then he tells them, he gets them all separated and told them what they're supposed to do. But it also shows how each person put away their personal pride, ambition, and submitted to God's call. Amen? Because that's the big deal. When you can set down everything that you think you believe, everything you think you should do, everything you think everybody else should believe, put that away, answer God's call, and God will bring the rest of the people around you. That's how it works. They submitted to God's call, to Nehemiah's leadership, and each stuck to their specific task until it was completed. Another very strong point of what happens when people join together under God's call, even with different beliefs, both political and religious, without God's call, a common commitment to the specific task in hand, without that, the results would be complete chaos. They would have been a self-defeating chaos where all, everything would have been destroyed and amazed. I'm going to have the worship team come on up as I finish this off. Because, dear family, the lesson we learned today from Nehemiah is how when God's people who are called by his name hear his voice, gather together in unity, there is nothing that cannot be accomplished. Amen? Amen. Yes. Wait. Amen? Amen? That's what I want to hear. That's good. That's so that everybody streaming could hear it. <laughs> Uh, my dear family, I'm going to be gone from you for a few weeks, but I just want you to know one thing. We are in a mission to make this church a place where God's love, his grace, and his peace abound. Everybody is welcome here. The pastors and elders cannot do this alone. We need each other to accomplish God's help. We cannot do it without your help. We need each other to accomplish God's task in 2023. In a few weeks, Pastor Jeff is going to be sharing about, and he's going to be laying out the vision for this year on the 29th. Please be here. Keep him in your prayers. Because what he's going to lay out for you is a task that can only be accomplished by everybody joining in. So my final question, dear family, is this. Will you join us as we go to do this work? Will you say, let us arise and build? Let's pray together. Father God, we stand in your presence, sometimes fearfully, 
Sometimes we are afraid, what would you like us to do next? Because we don't know where that would lead us. Not all of us have the ability to say, we can say yes to God before we know the question. And in that moment, Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to take up whatever it is that you ask us to do. And may our answer always be, let us arise and build. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. If you're here this morning and you'd like some prayer, um, I'm going to ask a couple of guys, maybe Rod, if you want to come up over there, and, and Dee and, and Connie, if you'll come up over here. Just if you have some people that you would like to pray with, these folks, they would love to pray with you. We'd love to hear from you. We're so grateful you are here this morning. May you be blessed in everything you do. Now, Glenn, go ahead, brother. Take it away.
a church of the unplanned, but we want you to know something. We're going to ask Bill to come up here. I'm going to have any of the elders in the building, former and new. Rod, you can join us. We love to pray. And uh, if you guys don't know, Bill is about to become bionic. And that means the bill that the jar of clay that you see will return to us in a few months with some stainless steel body parts. Unfortunately, they have to put those in his spine. And we've all had the time this week to see those pictures, and we know that what's about to be done is a miraculous thing of God, and we're really grateful for what God has done. Matter of fact, there's people in this building today, you should know, there's someone in this building today that has seven stints. Seven stints. Seven. And this is a place that he wants to be. There's someone in this building today that needs an oxygen machine, because this is a place that he wants to be. And I want you to know that he wanted to preach today on a lot of medication. He's dealing with some very severe migraines, because this is a place that he wants to be. And so if you haven't been to a church that truly believes that God can still heal or protect, we are a congregation of many people that God is both healing and protecting. So depending on how you feel comfortable with whatever you feel comfortable, stay within that realm, but join us as we stand before God and present this man's body and those that will be working on it and whatever the next two to three months hold of recovery, because we still believe that the great physician is alive and doing miracles today. Amen? All right, Father God, Tommy got the oil. Father God, this is a brother that we love. This is a brother that we care about. And this is a brother and this is a pastor and a father that you know has been dealing with pain for some time. And so, Father, on behalf of all of those who love Bill, from his family and his friends to his church, Father, I just pray on behalf of FBM, the ministry that he gets a chance to head up, Father, that this operation to restore movement to his body, to his spine, and the individuals that will perform it, Father, that the hand of God will be heavy upon them. That this operation, Father, for the amount of time and energy that it normally takes, like Nehemiah's wall, Father, would just go unexpectedly well. Because that you show favor in this man, Father. I know that the recovery time, we've been told months. But just like with this side, Father, I just pray that you get a chance to show yourself good and mighty in this recovery. And Father, as he does recover and as he has time to sit and postulate and think about life in his chair. Father, I, I pray that the prayers that he lifts up, and I know that he will, he will lift up for the people in this church that are broken and struggling and truly desire to see the wall rebuilt around your great city. Father, that you would strengthen and that you would hear them. Find favor today, Father, in the brokenness of our lives. Find favor in my dear brother this morning, Father, in that if this was the last thing that he gets a chance to do, Father, there's no place that he'd rather be than standing behind this pulpit proclaiming the name of God. Father, if there's someone here today and someone out there online listening to this message realizing it's not just answering the call, but we get to answer the call to fix other people's problems, that's what Bill is trying to model for us. He's trying to fix people's problems in the body of Christ, starting with looking out to the other people, saying, fix theirs. Please, Father, today, would you consider fixing his? Father, on behalf of every broken person in this audience as well that gets a chance to hear this prayer, would they realize that we love to pray and we hold each one of them up from, from those struggling with health, from, from those struggling with cancer, from those struggling struggling with disease, from those struggling with mental health, from those struggling in broken relationships, dealing with oppression, whatever they face today, Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name above all names, Father, would you show yourself to be mighty and good. Father, may everything that continues to happen in this place bring honor and glory to and through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name above all names that we pray. God bless you guys. Thank you. And we will see you next week. Have a blessed week. Make sure you pray for this man. We'll be praying for you. We'll see you next week.